Well, thank you. It's, um, it's an enormous uh, pleasure for me to be here. I feel overdressed. I'm the only one, apart from the councillors, I think I'm the only one uh, with a tie. Well, even one of those has taken it off, I think. Um, I, was, I was half tempted to take mine off, too. And sitting in the front row here are two of my former students who are newlyweds, and it's wonderful to see uh, you, too. David uh, is well-known uh, in the States, uh, particularly well-known in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, the denomination uh, to which I belong, the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, I was speaking to uh, some of my older members. Uh, I have two jobs, and one is I teach at the seminary, and the other is I preach at a church. And, and I was telling some of the members of the church I was coming over for this occasion and mentioned David Robinson's name and they looked a little puzzled and I said, oh, you know, the, the guy with the baggy sweaters and they knew exactly who it was. Um, and, and thirdly, I think, um, Robert Murray McShane, uh, who's buried just here at the corner, if you go around the building and, and down to the side here, you see his, uh, his monument. And uh, Robert Murray McShane is a household... Uh, name, I would imagine, in, in almost every congregation of the denomination, almost 2,000 of them, uh, congregations, I'm sh pretty certain uh, everyone would know who Robert Murray McShane is. And um, some of us have used his, uh, his daily reading format, uh, how to read the Bible through in, in one year. Uh, and uh, if for nothing else, Robert Murray McShane, whose ministry lasted seven years, uh, and God took him home at the age of 28 or 29. David has written the book, the, the definitive biography on McShane. Uh, remarkable that even in that short span uh, of time, 150 years later, we still uh, remember him. And the text uh, from uh, Isaiah, uh, I don't have to say Isaiah now, uh, Isaiah uh, 61 uh, is a text that uh, I understand Robert Murray McShane preached on uh, annually uh, in this congregation. And David uh, asked me if I would preach a sermon on uh, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Uh, there are several ways of, of reading the Bible and uh, preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible. And one way to read a text like this is to read it within um, the period of history that it falls. Uh, the Bible uh, can be summarized as teaching creation and fall and uh, redemption and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and uh, almost any text in the Bible uh, can be viewed from that uh, perspective uh, in our technical jargon, that is to read the Bible diachronically. Uh, and there's a sense in which that is what Isaiah is most of all speaking to here. He is giving to us a vision, a vision of something that is as yet in his day, seven hundred plus years before Jesus, 
2,700 years ago. From his perspective, it was merely a a tiny uh, speck of light. Uh, He's looking forward down through um, the pages of history, seeing as a prophet that he was, the evangelical prophet as Chrysostom uh, referred to Isaiah, Uh, seeing the coming of Jesus and the consequence of what Jesus is coming, his life and death and resurrection and ascension and glorification in heaven, the consequence of that uh, would be, and especially in the second half of Isaiah 61, music I would imagine to the politicians' ears, uh, he gives us a, a vision in Old Testament language and jargon, to be sure, of a renewed city, uh, of a a renewed world, uh, of a a condition of uh, blessing uh, and uh, idealism and concord and and peace. And uh, that's the projection line that we need to go to in about 25 minutes um, this afternoon. Now, as those of you who are familiar with Isaiah know, Isaiah often depicts the coming of Jesus uh, 750 years before he came, but he depicts him along um, three different metaphors uh, in the first part of the book, in the metaphor of a king, in the sort of middle part of the book, in the metaphor of a suffering servant, and in these closing visionary, um, almost apocalyptic uh, chapters in the vision of the anointed one. Uh, and that's uh, why the chapter begins, the spirit uh, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Uh, he's depicting the coming of Messiah. He's depicting the coming of Jesus and he's depicting him as one who is quintessentially anointed, uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to think about, first of all, these uh, opening uh, sentences in Isaiah 61, the, the preparation, if you like, of um, the anointed one. Uh, he is anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Gospels describe him as being baptized by the Spirit in his adulthood. And the Spirit, you remember, coming down in the form of a dove. He was equipped by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, prepared by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit. Everything that he did in his incarnate state, as the incarnate Son of God, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived by the Spirit. He died by the Spirit. He rose by the Spirit. He ascended by the Spirit. There are lots of 
uh, images. Uh, the spirit in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 is depicted in terms of, of the clouds um, hovering and brooding over creation. Jesus ascends and ascends into the clouds when he comes again at the end of the age, the second coming. He comes descending from clouds. These are images and pictures of the relationship of Jesus to the Holy Spirit. We are Christians. That means we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God, and there is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. The Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And here we're given this marvelous insight into the fullness of the incarnate life of Jesus. He did everything that he did as the Messiah, as the coming king, as the suffering servant, as the anointed one by the Holy Spirit. How much more should we who profess to love Jesus and who are in a relationship with Jesus through faith. Do all that we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This building, this extraordinary, beautiful uh, building, I've been trying to send pictures back to the United States. There are friends of mine, uh, ministers and others who want to see the building and they want to see if David actually wore a tie for this occasion <laughs> and they're not going to be disappointed. And, um, but this building uh, isn't going to be the means of bringing in the kingdom of God. It's, 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 it's an instrument in the establishment of the kingdom of God. But as David was saying earlier, it is the sovereignty of God. It is the power of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit for all that he did as the servant of the Lord. Son of God, though he was in his divine nature, wholly and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit in his human nature, how much more do you and I need the power and the blessing and the ministry and the equipping and the encouragement uh, and the sealing uh, of the Holy Spirit in order for us uh, to be engaged in the work of the kingdom of God. Well, the second thing that we see in this passage, and it occurs from halfway through verse uh, 1 down through about halfway through verse 3, we see the task of the anointed one. If the preparation of the anointed one is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the task of the anointing one is given now in a series of seven. Seven is always a perfect number in the Bible, and I think Isaiah may well in this apocalyptic vision be using numbers with that kind of significance here. He sees a seven-fold task, all of them in these infinitives, to bring good 
news to the poor, to bind up the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Seven extraordinary things that the, the uh, Savior does, uh, beginning with bringing good news to the poor. To bring the evangel, to bring the gospel to the poor. Now, the most important thing about this passage is that Jesus used this passage in, uh, a, on a very important occasion uh, when he came into the synagogue in uh, Nazareth. It's described for us in Luke chapter 4. Uh, it's almost at the beginning, the inauguration of his ministry. He is engaged in uh, preaching a little, and he's performed some mighty, astonishing uh, miracles of uh, healing and so on. And he's come to the synagogue uh, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee in, uh, in uh, Nazareth, and he, 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 is, uh, he is opening the scroll uh, of Isaiah. Uh, he reads from Isaiah 61, at least he reads a part of Isaiah 61, and then uh, he rolls up the stroll again and returns it to the official attendant in the synagogue, and he sits down uh, and begins to teach. That would have been the, the, the way they would have done it. Uh, the teacher would be sitting down, and everybody else would be standing, and, and he began to teach, and he said these astonishing, breathtaking words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your Years. For 750 years, this passage was read in Jewish synagogues in anticipation of the coming of the anointed one that Isaiah spoke of. And Jesus read from this passage in the synagogue and, and says, Today, today in your ears, this, uh, this is fulfilled. In, in, in all of its in all of its grandeur, in all of its breathtaking import, um, this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus is this anointed one who's come to preach good news to the poor. Good news. Extraordinary news. News about how an individual, how a man, a woman, a boy, a girl can come into a right relationship with God. How someone who has no hope, someone who has no claim, someone who has no standing in terms of the world and society, someone with no great background, someone with no uh, great claim to make, the poor of Jesus' day, I've got good news for you. News of salvation. News that you can come into a, a living, vibrant relationship 
with Jesus so that you discover God as your treasure. That's the good news. News that's going to integrate your life. News that's going to put your life together. News that's going to uh, restore the the broken pieces and, and make you into the vessel that God intended you to be. News that's going to give purpose and sense and and direction to your life. News that's going to change your life uh, 180 degrees. Good news for for the poor. That's, That's gospel. That's what gospel means. That's what the word gospel means. It means evangel. It's the Greek word euangelion. It's the word that's rendered here, good news, from the Hebrew of Isaiah 61. There's, there's good news for you. And in terms of how the Bible views us, we are all poor. Because none of us have a claim by nature upon God. Because we have forfeited that claim. Because by nature, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By nature, we're children of Adam. By by nature, we are out of sorts with God. By nature, in Paul's language, we are children of wrath even as others. But I have good news for you. This is a building where the good news is going to be spoken over cups of coffee and in... um, lounge chairs and in more formal settings, uh, in collective worship on the Lord's Day and everything in between, this, this building is going to reverberate with good news. And you see the, the various metaphors that are employed here to bind up the broken hearted. What news can bind up the broken hearted? What do you say to someone? As I was having to say to a friend of mine who's my age, he's a very close personal friend, and his wife dies of cancer. And she's a wonderful, she was a wonderful, extraordinary woman. She's just two months older than me. And they have three children and grandchildren, set of twins, and she's been dead for 24 hours, and, and we're having a conversation, private conversation together. And he says, I, I'm unhappy, I'm sad because she's gone, but I'm also full of joy because I know she's in heaven. I, I know the cancer doesn't affect her anymore. I, I know she's walking with Jesus now. That's that kind of news that, that binds up the broken hearted or gives liberty to the captives to be a prisoner in Isaiah's day, to be a prisoner in Jesus' day with, with no rights, with absolutely no civic rights of any kind, with no hope. In a, in a condition of absolute destitution. And I've got good news for you. What kind of good news do you give to somebody in, 
in prison. David and some of you here are ministers and others of you perhaps visit prisons on a, on a regular uh, basis. And no matter what the prison, no matter how new it is and how, how recent the smell of paint is in a prison, it's a prison. And as soon as you go in, whatever it looks like from the outside, as soon as you go in to a prison, you, you, you sense this is a prison. And you cannot get out of here. You're, you're incarcerated. You're, 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 you're bound. But I've got good news for you. What kind of, what kind of news is that? Or the opening, the opening of prison doors. Or the year of the Lord's favor. That's a particularly Jewish metaphor that doesn't perhaps translate so well into 2009 in Dundee in Scotland. But imagine, imagine with me... Um, a, a, a time of extraordinary blessing. Uh, think, of the, think of the happiest time in your entire life, perhaps your wedding day for you two. Um, th- there's nothing quite like, there's no parallel to that day. A day when everything seems to be wonderful. And, and that's the kind of metaphor that lies behind this year of the Lord's favor. Or comfort to those who mourn. Or or to grant a beautiful headdress for ashes and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You understand this is poetry. Some of the things we've just been singing have, have implied fairly uh, difficult uh, poetic metaphors uh, and similes uh, and, and, and so on. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is doing here. I have, I have good news for you. Jesus comes and says, and imagine it, imagine you were in that synagogue that day and you see this man and he's from Nazareth and you know what they say about people from Nazareth, Um, no good thing comes from Nazareth, that's what they said. And he's, what, 30 years old. And he has no background. He's born in, in, well, questionable circumstances. He's born of Mary and nobody's too sure who his father was. And there's gossip and there's innuendo and there's talk about his birth. And he comes in and he says, today this is fulfilled in your ears. He's saying, I am this one. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one who brings good news. The good news centers on Jesus. Do, do, you, notice, do you notice that? The good news centers on, on Jesus. It, it centers on this, this man, this God-man. This man who is God. This man who is the second person of the Trinity. This, this man who came to live and to die and to rise again and to ascend to his Father in heaven... That's the good news. Now, why is that good news? Why does the coming of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, why is that good news? Why is it good news that a Jewish man died on a cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? Why in the world is that good news? That, that he dies the most brutal, civil death imaginable of crucifixion. Why is that good news? Is it good news because he's an example? You know, we should be like Jesus. Is that what it's saying? 
Is that good news? You know, you know what, you need? what you need is to be like Jesus. Try going to a prisoner who's locked up in prison for the rest of his life and say, I've got good news for you. Try to be like Jesus. Is that good news? Because you can't be like Jesus. You go to somebody and you say to a mourner whose life has been ripped apart, who cannot see where he's going to be a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. Everything that gave stability to his life is, is gone. And you say to him, here's, here's good news, just be like Jesus. My friends, that's not good news. Because if you try to be like Jesus, you will discover that you can't be like Jesus. Because every day there's sin, and every day there's failure, and every day there's shortcoming. No, why is this good news that, that this man, this Jewish man, this man who dies on a cross in, on Calvary, why is that good news? Because he was sent to die in our place. He was sent to die for us. You know, this prophet, if you just turn back just a few pages, he says in one of the songs that he sings in Isaiah 53, surely in verse 4, surely, well, let's go back to verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now listen. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only can unlock the gates of heaven and let us in nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling Naked, look to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I have good news for you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot, by going to church or doing more, or reading more Bible, or making more resolutions, or trying to be good. You, you cannot, in that way, make yourself right with God. But God has sent His Son, His, His only Son. He spared not His own Son for us. That's the gospel. That Jesus died and rose again for me. I discovered this truth when I was uh, about your age, I guess. I was uh, 18. Maybe you're older than 18. Um, I was uh, 18. I was a first-year student at university in 1971. I'd never gone to church in my life. Didn't know a thing about the Bible. I'd never read it. Didn't possess a copy of it. I couldn't have told you if Genesis was in the Bible. 
I knew absolutely nothing. I was studying physics and mathematics at university. And uh, somebody, a, a friend of mine, passed on to me, just gave me this book by John Stott, Basic Christianity. And I was a scientist. At least I thought I was. So I had no time for religion. And if it hadn't been for my friend who had given me this book, I probably wouldn't have read it. But because it was my friend, I, I read it. Basic Christianity. Within three days, my life had been turned upside down. From going from a position where I really didn't know or didn't care whether Jesus ever lived or not, to thinking of him as my Lord and my Savior. I heard the good news. That Jesus died for me. That he shed his blood for me. He opened the prison doors for me. He gave me news that put my life together. That gave me meaning and purpose and integration. And a goal and a sense of direction and a sense of stability. I found a treasure. The greatest treasure of all my life. I have known him for over 35 years. And he has never, I've let him down every day. There hasn't a day, a day hasn't gone by and I haven't let him down. But he has never, ever let me down. This, this Jesus of Nazareth. There are a countless number of folk in here, I imagine, who can give a similar testimony. Oh, the way God brings you to Jesus is different for each one of us. But the meaning of it is exactly the same. These are objective truths. Uh, You're mentioning uh, Foucault, just a I pronounce it Foucault. French, you know. Um, but, But the man who said there's no such thing as objective truth. And my dear friends... This word, this, this Bible, it's objective truth. Jesus is objective truth. He is what he says he is. What he claims to be. And he claims to be the fulfillment of, of this passage. Now, I'm on a time limit. And I promise to keep to a time limit. And I've got about five, six minutes. And I'm going to keep to that. Give me five minutes. Because I want to say just something about the last part of this chapter. And, and some of you don't have Bibles, so it's, I'm, I'm going to have to describe it to you. But it's, it's visionary, it's apocalyptic. Actually, friends, it, it sounds political. It sounds like something that a politician would say. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a promise about better times. It's a promise about, about ruined cities that have been ruined for generations, actually, as... as as you were reading this passage, I was thinking perhaps of this building as you were describing it. It wasn't that bad, I'm sure. But, but that's the picture of a, a ruined city coming to life again. I've been, I've been in some extraordinary cities in America. I'm a child of the 60s, and I remember I've been everywhere, man. Um, <laughs> which I won't sing to you now. But um, I, I've been in some southern uh, cities in the south southern states of America that uh, were devastated in the 60s and 70s through, through racial and other issues. Um, and, and the downtown of the city died completely. Um, I, I live in a city now where the downtown has had died and is 
trying, desperately trying, to sort of come to life again. But I've, I've been in cities where the downtown has come to life. Uh, where that which was old and dilapidated and, and just ruin has, has come to bustling life. And the sounds of people and commerce. But it's not this picture. This is a picture of not just the rebuilding of cities. But it's a city where there's going to be justice. Righteousness. Oh, you know, we sang Jehovah Tzitkenu. It's the word righteousness, right? It's just the Hebrew word for righteousness. It's one of God's names. He calls himself Jehovah Tzitkenu. Tzitkenu is the Hebrew word for righteousness. Where, where justice, if you like, is seen on every street corner. And you say to yourself, yeah, politicians do extraordinary work. I couldn't be a politician to save my life. But they do extraordinary work. But that's not, that's not the vision here. There's something even more glorious here. What, what's in view here is perfection. Actually, what's in view here, reading between the lines and the somewhat mixed metaphors of Isaiah 61, is, is the coming to life again of the first chapter of the Bible. What you have in the first chapter of the Bible is Eden. Eden is a metaphor for beauty and concord and peace and people who get along with each other. And you've got in Isaiah 61 a picture of Gentiles serving Jews. Now, that's not, that's not to say that Isaiah is seeing a day when Gentiles are going to be slaves to Jews. That's, that's not the picture at all. The picture is, at this period in time, Jews had no time for Gentiles. Now, the reverse is now, it's now true about anti-Semitism, but here you've got the reverse of that. You've got Jews hating Gentiles. It was a problem Jesus had to contend with all the time. Gentiles were dogs. If you touched a Gentile, you had to wash your hands. You couldn't, you couldn't eat food once you touched a, gen, a Gentile. It was a problem in the very, very early church. How, how do you deal with converted Gentiles and converted Jews now worshipping together? And, and here in the, in the latter part of Isaiah 61, you've got this picture of the renewed city, the renewed world, Eden restored, the new Jerusalem dawning. These are, these are pictures, do you understand? Jesus comes as the anointed one. He comes to bring good news. And what is the result of that good news? And the result is change. Change on a scale that we've never seen before. Actually, it's, it's change that you see just little glimpses of. You see a glimpse of it in here today. This is a glimpse of it. But what does the gospel do? Well, it brings life. It brings vision. It brings Renewed energy and, and, and fervor and, and love between people. I guarantee, I guarantee that there have been people over the last nine months working together on a common project who otherwise might have been at odds with each other. 
It often happens. It's just a little glimpse of what Isaiah is seeing. Now, Isaiah is seeing a day that's far off. Yes, he's seeing the coming of Jesus, but he's seeing it. You know, when you look at two mountains from a distance, they look as if they're on top of each other. So he can see the coming of Jesus and this renewed, renewed earth. And it looks as if the coming of Jesus will immediately renew the earth. But actually, when you come to it, there's, there's, a, there's a gap between the two. You ever gone on a hike and you say, I'm going to go to that second mountain. And you get to the first one and you think, no, we'll call that a day. Well, we're in the gap in 2009. We're in the gap between the first and the second. We're in the gap between the Jesus who has come and died and risen again. But he hasn't come again. In biblical terms, we're in the gap between the two advents. We're in the gap between what Jesus came to do and what he will ultimately do. I thank God for what politicians do in restoring order and structure through, through law and initiatives. But there's only so much that can be done in a fallen world. But there's a vision here that's a glorious, breathtaking vision of what the gospel not only can do, but what the gospel will ultimately do. You know, when Jesus read this passage, he stopped. He stopped at the point where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped there because the next phrase was, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's a reference to the end. It's a reference to the day of judgment. It's a, it's a, it's a reference to when God will, will renew all things and he'll gather his people to himself and he'll create the new heavens and new earth. But, but there's the other side. That's what the book of Revelation calls the outside. There's the city and then there's the outside. And that hasn't happened yet. And so Jesus couldn't read that passage and say, this day this has been fulfilled. That's, that's still to come. And I want just as I close, and I think I've broken my promise by a minute, I just want to close by saying, that's a great, great vision. It's what the center for, David? Public Christianity is largely about. Of do, taking small steps to point people in the direction of what the gospel can do. Not just the gospel on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, but what the gospel does in transforming society. That's a great vision. And an even greater vision is the transformation of society in the new heavens and the new earth and the new city. Now, my friends, are you a member of that city? I'm not asking you a member of this church. That's relatively unimportant. But are you a member of that city? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know the good news? Do you have that song in your heart this afternoon? If you're not a Christian here today, run to Jesus. No matter who you are or where you're coming from, 
Run to Jesus. Because he has said, he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this extraordinary vision of an ancient prophet about a day when Jesus would come, but of a day that is yet to come. And we thank you for this wonderful treasure, this good news that puts our lives together and makes us right with you. We thank you this is a message for young people and old people, for those in society and incarcerated within society, a message for everyone, and we bless you for it. Now, grant us your continued presence as we continue in our time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if the presenters could come up. Um,